Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of gun violence, violence against children, suicide, and brief references to sexual violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. The United States National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. There's nothing supernatural about your pain. Elio hadn't worked at the Villa de Vecchi, but he almost felt like he had. His grandfather and great-grandfather had worked there, and he was 14 when the owners closed the majestic house's doors for the last time. 1960 was a tough year for many reasons, but when the rumors started, that only added insult to injury, people began to say there were ghosts, that this beautiful building held some kind of inescapable darkness. Elio didn't just scoff. He laughed at the top of his lungs at the utter ridiculousness. Then he got a truly wonderful idea. He enlisted his friend Antonio in a little prank to teach the trespassers a lesson. Villa de Vecchi had ghosts, they said. So he and Antonio would be the ghosts. They rented vintage suits and put on fake mustaches to evoke the great men of the villa's heyday almost a hundred years ago. They would hide around the property, appearing and disappearing in impossible places, pretending to be the same person. Night fell, and Elia was practically buzzing with anticipation. He braced himself around the corner as a young couple picked their way through the abandoned living room, laughing to themselves. He stepped out of the darkness, ready to say, boo. But there was no one there. He looked left, then he looked right, puzzled. Where had the dark-haired woman and her handsome beau gone? The air grew cold. Elio shivered, searching the darkness for Antonio to ask him what was going on. But there was no sound, no sign of another living soul. Elio took a deep breath, prepared to call for help. And then the real ghosts showed up. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Villa de Vecchi, a now derelict 19th century Italian manor, also known as the House of Witches, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Sometime between 1854 and 1857, Count Felice de Vecchi finished building his Eastern architecture-inspired summer residence at the Valsacina Valley, just east of Italy's Lake Como. 
It was the pinnacle of old world and top-of-the-line mid-century convenience with intricate frescoes, indoor heating pipes, and dumbwaiters. The over 425,000 square foot wooded park that surrounds the villa provided an idyllic and isolated setting for the Count, his wife, and his young daughter to enjoy nature. But the house seemed to be ill-fated from the start. The architect, Alessandro Sidioli, died in the middle of the construction process, and legend has it that in 1862, the Count arrived at Villa de Vecchi to a gruesome discovery that would change his home forever. Felice raised his rifle and shot into the sky. A small bird squawked before falling to the leaf-strewn forest floor. Felice smiled. He loved the way that shooting made him feel. Powerful, ready to bend the world to his will. It was strange, but in these moments he was able to finally forget the report of enemy gunfire, echoes of being outgunned by the Austrians as he defended the barricades in Milan. Perhaps it was because he could control the violence in these woods. He let the hush of the forest take him, quieting the memories. Felice pulled out a handkerchief from his pocket and wiped at the sweat from his brow. The dense trees provided plenty of protection from the overbearing sun, but the heat still got through. He ambled over toward his trophy, not sure it merited collection. It might have been better to let the insects feast on the corpse than to string it up. It was too small for a trophy, and he had no need to hunt for his own food. The small bluebird twitched in the dirt, its wings fluttering helplessly as it tried to lift itself off the ground. Felice admired the bird's spirit. It couldn't accept defeat. But flies were already starting to buzz toward it clustering in the gunshot wound. The bird flapped its wings faster, panic in its eyes. A loud squawk echoed through the trees. Felice raised his rifle again, peering down the sights. The sky was relatively empty. He lowered his gaze to the forest, catching what at first seemed like dapples of sunlight on wood. His first impression was mistaken. It was a fawn resting in the undergrowth a real prize within his reach. He thanked whatever creature had made the noise. He sucked in a breath and pulled the trigger. But somewhere between his breath and the impact, the fawn turned into his 12-year-old daughter, Beatrice. The shell blew through her chest. Her mouth opened in a silent scream. Confusion marred her brow. She stepped backward, branches breaking under her feet as a wet, red flower bloomed on her white dress. In the next second, she was on the ground. Felice took off running. He stumbled over debris and a few stray animal carcasses, desperate to reach his daughter. She was gasping on the ground as he pulled her into his arms. Her lip trembled, and she strained a force of breath through drowning lungs. Felice held her tightly to him. He cried, muttering a series of apologies to her. She went rigid in his arms. When he looked down, he was grasping the corpse of a fawn. 
He loosened his grip on the animal and stood up slowly. Felice stared at the corpse for what felt like eternity, wondering if his eyes or his mind had failed him. He told himself he was only homesick. Beatrice was at the villa with her mother. He had not done the unthinkable. Too shaken to carry the bloody fawn back with him, Felice picked his way back through the woods. The villa stood in the distance next to a field of lush green. He came in through the back and called Beatrice's name. The heat had gotten to him, sure, but he needed to make sure that his child was still all right. His heels clacked loudly against the tile as he roamed from room to room. He called for her again and again, telling her he did not want to play a game at this moment. But she would not answer him. Felice could not keep the terror from his voice as he commanded her to come down and greet him. Still, he heard nothing. As he passed through the kitchen, he noticed that preparations for lunch had been abandoned. A ball of pasta dough sat on the marble countertop, waiting to be rolled and cut. He poked his head into the adjoining room, where the butler should have been making preparations for his afternoon drink. The bottle was out and uncorked, but the butler was missing. Felice ran through the first floor of the villa, calling for someone, anyone, to answer him. The only sound he could hear was a mouse skittering along the tile floor. Panic growing in his chest, Felice raced for the staircase. He took the stairs two at a time as he continued to shout for someone to answer him. Each guest room was empty. Felice opened the door to his own bedroom. His wife, Sophia, laid curled up in the sheets, dead to the world, peaceful and gorgeous in her slumber. He lingered in the doorway, hoping that her serene smile would bring him back to reality. He could not blame her for not answering his calls when she looked so at ease. He approached slowly, whispering her name. She did not move. Felice knelt down next to the bed and took her in. Up close, her skin was paler than he remembered. Parts of her cheek were almost a soft blue. She needed more sun. He could fix that. He brushed his hand against her cheek, lifting a stray piece of hair away from her face. Her skin was cold. Felice said her name again, louder this time. She did not wake. He put his hand on her shoulder and gently shook her. His movements jostled her body slightly, but she remained rigid under his hands. He pulled away the blanket slowly. A large crimson pool had soaked through the sheets. Stab wounds had torn her gown almost to shreds. He could see the outline of more wounds beneath the pale yellow fabric. There was not an inch of her torso that hadn't been penetrated with a sharp blade. He said a silent prayer for his beloved, tears stinging his eyes. Her smile was now a cruelty, a reminder of how at peace she'd been before someone had stolen the life from her body. Then, arms wrapped around his torso, tears of relief trailed down his face. Beatrice had found him. He turned slowly to embrace her, to feel the small warmth and weight in his arms that would tell him she was safe. But as he looked down at the small face, the round features, he realized 
She was not the little girl whose head he had kissed this morning. Large red dots covered her arms and legs. Long cuts ran across her skin at different angles. Her blood-smeared smile looked nothing like his daughter's. She had been possessed by some demon. A bloodthirsty creature had snuck its way into their house. He wept openly, begging God to bring his wife and daughter back to him. The thing that wasn't Beatrice blinked at him, confused. She was here, she told him. She'd always be here. Felice searched the woods and then the world for his daughter. But as the months wore on without a trace of his little girl, the thing that wasn't Beatrice grew more convincing. If he wanted his family back, he knew what he had to do. He decided to use the gun from that fateful afternoon. It seemed fitting. He would correct his vision from that day, harming himself rather than his little girl. Not Beatrice never left him. Skipping around the large living room, running her hands along intricately carved accents on the walls, she assured him that they'd be together soon, all of them, the way they were meant to be, together forever. It was a cumbersome weapon for this purpose, but he had found a way. Felice took one last look at the creature whose very existence mocked his pain. Then he pulled the trigger. But the monster who looked like a child had left out a vital detail. Violence meant stasis at Villa de Vecchi. He would not be allowed to leave. He, like the thing that wasn't Beatrice, would always be here. The murder of Felice de Vecchi's wife and disappearance of his daughter appeared to be more legend than fact. The records of his wife's death have no mention of violence and don't match the timeline proposed by the rumors. There are no records of any murders at Villa de Vecchi, but certain reliable facts remain. Count de Vecchi was an artist's patron and war hero, having led the Italian National Guard to victory during the Five Days of Milan an 1848 guerrilla insurrection that ended Austria's occupation of the city. The architecture of his summer villa was inspired by his travels through Turkey, India, and Egypt. He had two children, Giuseppe and Beatrice, born in 1846 and 1850, respectively. He cared for them on his own from their mother's death in 1851 until his own in 1862, at the age of 46. Both the Count and Countess de Vecchi are said to have died of natural causes, according to a descendant of the villa staff. De Vecchi's brother, Biago, took over stewardship of the villa, but the home fell into disrepair, changing hands repeatedly as the rumors of horror and hauntings grew. Visitors claim they heard the sound of a grand piano coming from the mansion's living room even in the darkest night. They said they heard screams and that a phantom little girl had the run of the place. Sometimes it doesn't matter if the legend is true. It resonates beyond facts. Visitors don't know the real story. 
perhaps they don't care. They still sneak through the crumbling walls, leaving candles, graffiti, and what might be bloodstains. Rumors of satanic rituals and coven gatherings abound, and there is one legendary visitor who only made the stories worse. Up next, the Villa de Vecchi's dark history draws the eye of one of the most infamous occultists of all time. Now back to the story. In 1920, Aleister Crowley was looking for property in Italy. The notorious occultist wanted to build an abbey dedicated to his new religion, Thelema. Legend has it that he stayed at Villa de Vecchi for several nights, but eventually settled on using Sicily for his commune. But the stories of his brief and mysterious stay cast a shadow over Villa de Vecchi to this day. Evie wasn't sure she believed in all of this. Not yet, anyway. She liked Leah and Ninette very much, but their partner, the infamous Aleister Crowley, was a different story. Evie never saw him without a needle or white powder, and he seemed unconcerned as his children ran about the decaying house, chasing after each other and screaming as the adults got up to their own forms of fun. And oh, what fun it was! Evie was positively scandalized by the Thelemite style of worship. She didn't mind women kissing women or men kissing men, and she admitted that it could be its own form of magic. Such things were actually how Evie had become close with Ninette. But Crowley took things to a new and unnerving place. His voice was honeyed and authoritative as he commanded his followers to take part in strange rituals involving sex and drugs and the consumption of strange liquids. They hadn't pressured her to participate yet. Evie had a feeling that Ninette was running interference for her. But as they passed beneath the ornate threshold of Villa de Vecchi, she had the strangest feeling of being trapped, even as the door stood wide open. The evening began as it usually did. Curly described his revelation in Egypt, where his wife was possessed by an angel called Iwas who sounded an awful lot like Lucifer. Crowley contended that Iwas was far smarter than he or any other man could be. Evie kept her comments about the intelligence of women versus men to herself, though she allowed herself a little chuckle. The sound caught in her throat as she realized Crowley had heard her. He called out her name, which he hadn't thought he even knew. He challenged her, eyes flashing. Evie tried to find Ninette's face in the crowd, but her head was bowed in shame. Crowley asked Evie if she doubted him. She withered under his piercing gaze. He told her she was neglecting her will, her true focus. If she could not pursue that, she had no reason to be here. Evie was inclined to agree. The moment between them seemed to stretch on forever, the awkwardness of a faux pas mixed with something darker. Evie felt the wall press against her shoulder blades as she backed up, but she couldn't help feel like there was someone behind her. Then, without warning, Crowley laughed. The rest of the crowd joined in. He said she was unbalanced, and he went back to the party. Evie's breath slowly came back to her. Ninette finally approached. She reached out to touch her, but Evie pulled away, 
Ninette seemed to believe her humiliation was for her own good. Evie wanted to leave entirely, but they were surrounded by woods on all sides, and the car belonged to Ninette. After some persuading, Ninette promised to take her straight to Milan in the morning and urged her to get some rest. Evie agreed and headed upstairs to sleep in one of the guest rooms. She passed a group of shrieking children on the landing, glad they were on their way downstairs rather than up. But she couldn't sleep. The air was freezing. She put on her wool overcoat and hopped into bed again, but it didn't help. She cocooned herself thoroughly in her blankets, not caring how long it might take her to escape in the morning. Finally, sleep took her. She woke up to a familiar piercing gaze leering over the bed. Evie blinked, telling herself it was a dream, but the smell told her a different story. Crowley's eyes were wild, hungry. Evie was enough of a European bon vivant to recognize a bad mix of cocaine and heroin when she saw it. The pinpoint pupils, delirium and tremors, euphoric overconfidence. The man lunged for her, chanting in a language she didn't understand. Evie screamed and tried to free herself from her cocoon. The house around her was eerily silent. Where had everyone gone? She managed to struggle out of the bedclothes and ran for the door, narrowly evading Crowley's outstretched hands. His motion was strange and stuttering half-lumbering slowness, half-manic jolts as he followed her into the hallway. Evie wheeled about, unsure of her surroundings. All the other doors in the hall were closed. She pulled on the nearest one, but it only shook on its hinges. Locked. Same with the next and the next. Crowley rounded his way into the hall. Evie tried to suppress a squeak of panic as she turned another corner. This hallway had no doors, aside from the one at the very end. But it seemed so very far away as the man's footsteps advanced. Then she saw it. Salvation. Only a third of the way down the new hallway. A dumbwaiter, like the one she'd hidden as a child on her parents' estate. She jumped in, making sure her nightgown didn't get caught in the small door. She waited, breathless holding onto the cord like a talisman. She heard the gruff and erratic breathing of the man outside and tried desperately to control her thumping heart. There was a long silence. Then, he yanked the door open. Evie let go of the cord and let the dumbwaiter free fall. For several exhilarating seconds, she was plummeting through space, darkness, and death. She finally managed to catch it, right before she hit the ground, hovering only a few inches above the bottom of the shaft. She could feel Crowley tugging at the cord above, but she held onto her end with all her might. She pulled against him, ignoring the rawness of the rope burns on her hands. Just when she thought her body would give out, the line went slack. 
She paused, listening for any sound. But there were no footsteps, no chanting, no acolytes sleeping on the floor after a night of so-called sex magics. She very, very carefully inched the door open to see a stately kitchen and a familiar shadow. She snapped the door shut in her panic. The click was deafening in the silence. Evie resolved to scream as loud and as long as she could when he caught her. That would be her will. A minuscule victory, considering. She heard him come close, only a foot or two from the small door. But then he stopped. He was talking to someone. She didn't recognize the voice. It was small and soft, but with a strange kind of authority. He wasn't supposed to be here, the voice said. He would regret it if he stayed. He would be punished. She heard mumbling from Crowley, but it stopped abruptly as the small voice told him to leave. And then he did, his heavy breath and sluggish limbs sliding as he dragged himself away. Evie waited for a long silence, painfully curious to see her savior. When she was sure they were alone, she opened the dumbwaiter door. Her rescuer was a little girl, a little older than the other Thalemite children. Her hair was dark, her eyes round and beautiful. Evie thanked her for helping her. He didn't belong here, the girl explained nonchalantly, but Evie could stay if she wanted. Evie bent down to the girl's level and told her that she had to make her way back to the city in the morning. If she didn't like it here, perhaps they could speak to her parents or to the authorities in Milan. Evie asked the girl her name. The girl smiled in a way that was a little too adult. Beatrice, she said, as her smile split wide enough to make her bleed. Crowley did not stay at the Villa dei Vecchi long. He decided to build his Collegium ad Spiritum Sanctum in Cefalu, Sicily instead. Italy deported Crowley in 1923, after the widow of a former acolyte claimed that her husband had been forced to drink the blood of a cat and died as a result. Crowley would never return to the country. Seven years later, the De Vecchi family would give up ownership of the villa, leaving it to new owners and the elements. Coming up, a modern visitor meets the other supernatural occupant. Now back to the story. As the years wore on, Villa de Vecchi was given many names. Ghost Mansion, the Red House, for its distinctive red facade. Now peeling so badly, it appears as if the whole building is wounded. But its most well-known title is Casa de las Streghe, the House of Witches. It's a common pilgrimage for occult practitioners, adventurous photographers, and history buffs, all whom want to pay tribute to the villa's complicated history in their own way. They act as shared witnesses to the decay of a once great building, a once great legacy. But that legacy does not seem content 
to be buried. The drive to the abandoned Villa de Vecchi lost its charm with the seventh or eighth wrong turn. Julia hated driving on the wrong side of the road, but she hated not being able to read road signs even more. She narrowly avoided driving off a mountain road several times. These were easily the narrowest streets she'd ever been on. But she'd finally made it to the wooded area that surrounded the villa. Technically, she would be trespassing, so parking nearby wasn't really an option. Nor were there many roads around the property. She trudged through the wet grass and mud, keeping the magnificent house in her sights as she took shots of the surrounding plants and wildlife with her DSLR. From the front, Villa de Vecchi looked almost like an old set piece from a hammer film. Vines and leaves covered the first floor exterior. They seemed to be eating away at the skeleton of the structure, paint peeling, rot taking hold. She shivered as she passed by the area where a fountain had once stood. Online reports claimed that it had gushed blood like a gaping wound when Felice's wife was found. From the comfort of her computer, it seemed ridiculous. But walking the land, seeing the bright red splotches on the building, it became far easier to picture. Julia pushed through the vegetation, spotting a brown door amongst all the plant life. She stepped forward felt the pull of thorns against her skin, but kept moving. Vines clung to her hoodie as she finally freed herself enough to press her weight against the door. It opened on creaking hinges, and she stepped through. A piece of vine tugged her back sharply. She yanked against it to free herself, leaving strands of her hair behind to be swallowed by the green. In her first clear look at the space, she couldn't quite picture the faded majesty that had once been lauded as an architectural marvel. The walls were peeling away like badly sunburnt skin. Julia took out her camera and began to shoot. Faded colors on the ceiling pointed to some sort of beautiful old fresco design, but she couldn't really tell what it had once depicted. The inset frame of the piece was more intact formerly white curlicues that clung to the decaying plaster. Small splotches of mold trailed down the wall. From far away, it almost looked like the house itself was crying. She smiled sadly, a cursed home, weeping for the people who'd suffered inside. Neon spray paint traveled along the walls, telling strange stories of vandals who came before Names, dates, hearts, and symbols. Dark ones and dark messages. Julia lowered her camera. She heard a soft brush of footsteps from behind her. Julia mangled Italian as she turned, trying to explain that she didn't speak the language very well and was sorry for trespassing. But she was only talking to the air. In the dust were a set of moving footprints. Walking at first skipping, then hopping. Slowly, Julia realized she knew the pattern. Hopscotch. They jumped across the floor and toward another doorway. Julia felt compelled to follow, finally remembering to use her camera. The giggle of a child came from behind her. She wasn't going to look this time. If the people didn't want to be seen, she wasn't going to try and pretend otherwise. 
The laugh floated toward the footprints as they wove through several different rooms. Even though it was the middle of summer, Julia could see her own breath in front of her as she walked. The child's giggles grew louder as the footsteps stopped in front of the staircase. She looked around for a moment. She wasn't sure now she should stop or keep going. She lifted the viewfinder to her eye, trying to line up another photograph. A shove came from behind. Julia tripped forward, barely catching the railing. The sound of her breath was drowned out by the child's laugh, growing ever more unsettling to her ears. It had started as a light sound, but there was darkness around the edges of it now. Patches of mold dripped down the walls as she ascended to the second floor. She followed the noise from the staircase to what she could only assume was the master bedroom. The large doors were already open, welcoming her in. But the noise was gone, as were the footprints. The floor softened beneath her shoe. She paused, pressing her foot more firmly against the remains of the floor. When she was sure that it was safe, she kept going. The views from the window were breathtaking, the forest stretching out before her like the setting of a fairy tale, a shining bright sky over a sea of green. For a moment, Julia forgot about the decrepit state of the house entirely. She walked toward the window, hoping she could get the shot before the sunset. A large red blur flew at her. She ducked and jumped backward. The wood creaked beneath her. The blur flew at her again. She kept her head low. The ground groaned. Julia's foot broke through the ceiling of the first floor. The entire room started to shake. Julia tried to pull her leg back. It held firm. She bent down to the ground and wrapped her arms around her shin, tugging as hard as she could. Her other foot went through the floor. The room continued its rumblings. She looked around for something to grab onto, but there was nothing left inside. A woman emerged from the doorway. Her long black hair floated behind her, as though a breeze was kind enough to just follow her around. It would have been beautiful if her nightgown wasn't stained with blood, viscera leaking out onto the leaf-covered floor. She walked toward Julia, head tilted to the side, as though she were examining a classroom specimen rather than a person. Julia called for help. Italian words were leaving her head as her panic continued to grow. Aiuti, aiuti, aiuti. She could hear the surrounding floor beginning to crumble. The woman held out her hand to Julia. She smiled with relief. She'd read something about some locals pretending to be ghosts to frighten people off, Scooby-Doo style. Maybe they'd taken pity. She took the woman's hand and was lifted out of the floor. She took a deep breath in relief and cast a glance back at the holes her feet had left on the floor. The woman shoved her from behind. She fell forward, letting out a yelp. She was shocked to see that the centuries-old floor appeared to be liquefying below her. She felt a tug at the back of her jacket, saving her from the fall. But her guardian did not help her up. 
She was floating, suspended, legs kicking at nothing. Her breath caught as she turned her head enough to see the woman was the only thing between her and a likely fatal fall. She begged and pleaded for mercy. It was just light trespassing. She wasn't hurting anyone. The woman let her go. The events that happened at Villa de Vecchi are shrouded in legend, from supposed murder-suicides at the derelict site to the original incident that is said to have led to its haunting. But this mystery appears to have only enhanced the villa's role in the region as a tourist destination, even if said tourism is trespassing. The truth is that the abandoned places of the world are haunted, whether visitors see ghosts or not. Even as they crumble, consumed by the wild world that surrounds them, small bits of civilization remain. An ornamental frieze is now chipped and smoothed by moisture. A stunning floral fresco, now faded, necrotic with mold. Dumbwaiters that move up and down the building, seemingly of their own accord. Ghostly music echoes from the great room where the now smashed piano once stood. It carries out into the woods, inviting trespassers to join a party that never ends. Attended by a tragic count, his murdered wife, and their missing daughter, and the most famous occultist of all time. Whether you believe the tales or not, it's a hell of a place to visit. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson.